0: Matthew chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Would you follow along as I read this for you? When he came down from the mountain, that's Jesus, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the and gnashing of teeth will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, "'Go, let it be done for you as you have believed.'" And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. "'That evening they brought to him many "'who were oppressed by demons.'" And he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it points us to your son in whom we have life. I pray now, Spirit, would you um, speak to us? image of Christ. Would you speak to our hearts and conform us to the image of Christ? Would you draw us near to yourself so that we too might find life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last summer we concluded chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. We concluded the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus spent three chapters teaching about the law and teaching about the kingdom of God and teaching about righteousness and faithfulness and discipleship. And he comes down from the mountain, and we read right at the end of chapter 7 that all those who were there, the crowds, they were astonished at his teaching. They marveled at it because uh, he spoke with authority. He spoke with such power and truth. And now Matthew, the author of this gospel, uh, he's going to tell us now a new section of things about Jesus, just a great teacher. We're going to read here that he is a great healer, um, and that he heals, he cares for people, uh, he restores them, he makes them whole, um, especially those who are in need. One commentator says that Jesus is here stepping down from the mountain of Revelation and entering into the valley of the shadow where sickness and demonic forces held sway. And he comes with healing. And the people are astonished. Um, This morning, I want you to see in this passage um, that Jesus is able to heal you. Um, that, That he wants to heal you that he's able to heal you, and that he will heal you. we're going to talk about what that looks like, that he wants to heal you, he's able to heal you, and he will. Let's start. First thing I want you to know is that he wants to heal you. He does. In these passages, he especially groups these three together, the story of the leper, the story of the centurion, and the story of Peter's mother-in-law to show to emphasize Jesus' compassion. His compassion, his heart, particularly towards those who are on the outside. You know, the leper who was sick and isolated from the community. He was in great need, and Jesus cared for him. Um, The centurion was a Gentile who had no right to ask Jesus to, to help. He was on the outside of the Jewish community, and yet Jesus cares for him and wants to help him. Peter's mother-in-law was a woman in a very man-centered society that did not have equal rights. She was on the outside, and Jesus cares for her and wants to heal her. And in particular, let's look at the story with the leper to focus in on this great compassion of Jesus. This leper, he comes to Jesus, Lord, if you will... You can make me clean. The leper isn't lacking here confidence that Jesus' ability to heal. His concern is whether Jesus wants to heal him. Jesus, if you're willing, you can do it. Uh, If you want to, and that might seem odd to us, of course, of course, Jesus wants to heal people. I mean, that's just, that's who Jesus is, right? He's a miracle worker. Of course, Jesus wants to heal people. But for this leper, Um, For a significant part of his life, he would not have received that kind of uh, uh, compassion. Remember, a leper in those days was someone who suffered from a skin disease, and it was most likely contagious, so you didn't want to be around someone or touch someone who had this disease. This was a skin condition that would creep along your skin and infect your skin and destroy your health. Um, It was thought to be forever. I mean, it was second only to raising someone from the dead in terms of its ability to be healed. And so the leper did not question Jesus' ability to heal him. His concern was whether Jesus cared enough about him to come close to him and heal him. But his request was not just to heal him. What does he ask? If you are willing, will you make me clean? Not only was leprosy physically excruciating, not only did it force you to isolate from other people, to not be in community with other people, it made you religiously unclean. And not just for a time, you know, other things made you unclean for a day or seven days or have you. No, this was, remember, an incurable disease. You were indefinitely unclean. So this person was sick. They were cut off from society, from their world. And they were dirty near to God. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't worship God. They could not draw near to God. They were unclean. But Jesus, we read, was willing to draw near to him. He wanted to heal because of his compassion. He reached out his hand and touched him. What an unthinkable and utterly taboo thing that Jesus did. But it demonstrates his compassion. He reached out and touched the untouchable. Far from being unclean himself, Jesus makes the unclean clean again. Rather than catching this contagious disease, the wholeness and holiness of Jesus is what is contagious and passes through. This is the compassion of Jesus. He draws near to those who are in need, to those who are cut off from others, those who are isolated, those who are alone, feel unworthy to be loved, Feel unworthy even to worship God, Jesus draws near to you. He is compassionate towards you. He wants to heal you. He wants to help you. He wants to make you whole. I've mentioned before, uh, previously in illustrations, that Sarah and I really like watching the Netflix show The Crown. Uh, We're waiting, watching the final season. We haven't watched it yet. Uh, It's a show, if you haven't seen it, that follows the British royal family and the many generations uh, and their lives. And um, in a previous season, many of the episodes focused on the life of Princess Diana. And in one of the scenes, maybe you remember this from history, um, she was visiting the US and she visited a hospital in particular that was caring for infants and children born into the world suffering from HIV and AIDS. The hospital workers said that many of these children had been abandoned for them, Um, and yet no one wanted to adopt these children because of the stigma uh, around HIV and AIDS. Princess Diana, at that point, bends down over one of the beds, picks up one of the children, and gives them a hug, all while cameras are flashing all around recording this moment. The whole world sees her act of compassion. Princess Diana devoted much of her adult life to fighting uh, fighting for health care and support for many communities plagued with HIV, um, while many others simply turned their backs on those who were in need. At her funeral, uh, Sir Elton John played his song Candles in the Wind for her and he had rewritten the lyrics for this particular occasion and in one of the lines that he rewrote he says this you are born apart that is what jesus does with his compassion he stretches out his hand and touches those who are broken those who are hurting those who are in need of comfort and care. He brings grace. He brings mercy. He brings compassion and healing and restoration. He wants to heal you. He wants to care for you. What is it that you need help from? Maybe it's loneliness, isolation. I mean, studies show, especially for adult men, loneliness is an epidemic. Maybe you feel isolated. Maybe for you, similar to this man, it's shame, a feeling of being unclean and dirty and unworthy of God's love, unworthy of other people's love. Or maybe you feel guilty, unlovable, God, that makes you feel like, I can't draw near to God. Jesus, in his compassion, draws near to you. Do you need him today? We all do. Maybe this week you feel unlovely, unworthy. Remember, he cares for you. He wants to make you whole. That's his compassion. That's what we see here. Jesus, the healer, wants to heal you. Second, Jesus, the healer, not only wants to heal you, we see that he's able to heal you. Clearly, he has power to do this. His power is real. It heals completely. It heals immediately. Like instead of the leprosy coming onto Jesus' hand, the holiness of Christ goes on to the leper. He heals with power. I mean, the centurion's servant is far away, and he heals him immediately from a distance. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and he heals her, and immediately she pops up and is not only wanting to heal us, he is able to heal us. Because he has authority. The crowds marvel at Jesus' teaching because he taught with authority. Now they're marveling at him because he heals with authority. He is able to heal you and restore you. I I want to look at the second interaction with the centurion to really emphasize his authority. This is a centurion. He's a Gentile, a Roman general in the army. He oversaw a hundred other soldiers in the Galilean region. And he comes up to Jesus, desperate for help. One of his servants is homesick; Someone so dear and near to him, almost like a son, is laying sick in bed, paralyzed and suffering terribly. And he comes up to him and says that. In verse 7, we see Jesus' response. I will come and heal him. I, I prefer the NIV translation of this. Me to come and heal? Is that what you're asking? Me, a, a a Jewish teacher, are you asking me to come into your home of a Gentile to come and heal? It's, it's a startling response, um, but it's one that he kind of for foreso- fore, foreknew. He says, no, I'm not worthy for you to come. I know what it would cost you. You know, remember for a Jewish person to come into the home of a Gentile would make the person unclean. Remember, Peter uh, is told by Jesus himself in Acts to go to Cornelius' house and to share the gospel with him. Uh, Jesus says, Peter, go do that. And Peter hesitates. I don't know, God. I don't know. It might make me unclean. No, go. Jesus is saying, do you want me to come? I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. The question, this this potential obstacle Jesus creates, it really sets up an opportunity for the verse 8. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You know, I'm a Gentile, you're a Jew. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion knows, he believes that Jesus doesn't even need to come into his home to help. All he needs to do is to say a simple word, a command, and it'll be done. Why does the centurion believe that Jesus is able to do this? Because the centurion believes that Jesus has authority. He continues in verse 9, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one of them, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What this man is saying is this, I am a Roman centurion. I've been placed in a position of authority over 100 men. And they all serve the Roman army. The authority that's been given to me has been given to me by those above me. Soldiers to do this or that, they obey me. And they don't obey me because I command it. They obey because when I command something, Rome commands it. To defy me is not just to defy me, To defy me is to defy Rome and Caesar himself. In other words, the centurion understands that Jesus was under the authority of God. And therefore, God had given him authority. When he acted, he acted on behalf of God. When he spoke, he spoke with the authority of God. He believed that God's authority was vested to Jesus so that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. To defy Jesus, then, is to defy God. Therefore, Jesus' word must be vested with the same authority of God, that is, even authority to heal sickness. What great faith. True faith. That this is the kind of faith that causes, in verse 10, for Jesus to marvel. This is the Son of God, God in the flesh, marveling, being astonished at something that he hears. This faith is so simple, it's so clear, but it's so powerful. It says, I believe that you are ready and able to do what you say you can do, God. Jesus says, nowhere in all of Israel have I heard such faith. I believe you are able to do what you say you can do. That's simple faith, believing that Jesus can do what he says he can do. Do you believe that? Like, do you believe that Jesus is able to do what he promises he's able to do? Do you pray like that? When someone asks you to pray, do you say, oh yeah, I'll pray? Or do you actually believe, when I pray, I believe that Jesus is able to do the very thing that I ask him to do, the very thing that he promises to do? will do what he says he will do. I know it's hard to believe like that. It's hard to believe, it's, especially in miracles like this. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian. It is hard for us to believe in miracles. One of my former professors from the Presbyterian seminary, Presbyterian through and through, uh, he records this account in um, a commentary that he wrote on the book of James. He says this, During the autumn, uh, when I was first studying James in Ernest, a friend suffered a viral infection of the heart. Uh, While it was not a heart attack, it mimicked many of the symptoms of one. My friend felt listless. He looked gray and lifeless. And one day at church, I told him that James 5, something he had been studying, instructs the elders to lay hands on the sick and to pray for their healing. I suggested that he call the elders for that very purpose. Uh, He himself was one of the elders. So two weeks later, he told me that he wanted to proceed with it. No one in our six weeks and hoped that he didn't die in the meantime. At last, we appointed a time and a night for prayer, and so the elders were gathered. The pastor of the church summoned the elders, and before we prayed, the pastor told us not to expect a dramatic physical healing, since God heals in many ways. I appreciated his motive, but there was no need to restrain my enthusiasm. My doubting heart was already skeptical enough. My friend knelt down in the middle of a circle of elders. We anointed him with oil, we laid hands on him, and began to pray. Since I had started the whole process, I was appointed to offer the closing prayer. As soon as we began to pray, I had an overwhelming sense that God was, at that very moment, healing my friend. My arms felt what I can only describe as bolts of fire pushing through them, as I grasped my friend's shoulder, heat and energy burned my hand. I felt he pounds to the ceiling or push him through the floor if I wished. I knew God was healing him. I wanted to shout, we must stop praying that God will heal John and start praising God that he has healed him. But I was too astonished, too unsure of my sensations to say a word to anyone that night. For four days, I kept my experience to myself. But the next week after church, my friend beckoned to me with a wild grin. Dan, watch this. At once, he dashed up the flight of stairs, and I dashed after him and met him at the top. He smiled and said, and I'm not even breathing that hard. I knew it, I exclaimed. And told him what I had felt a few nights earlier, and he told me, I knew it too. Since that day, I have joined elders to lay hands on the sick and pray for them. I have never again felt that fire, and while I occasionally feel a flood of warmth and emotion, a number have experienced immediately healing from their serious illness. More have recovered gradually and under the care of physicians, Many have found spiritual healing, great peace, and spiritual renewal in times of crisis and suffering, whether they recovered physically or not, and some have apparently gained no physical or spiritual benefit at all. What my professor was saying is that we should have confidence, we should have faith that believes that Jesus is able to do what he says he's able to do. He's able to do it. Do you believe that? Do you believe he's able to heal you? And it doesn't have to be health. What's keeping you down? What burden are you carrying? What do you feel the weight of? Is it laziness or apathy? Is it a sense of heartlessness that you need rape and you need liberation from? Maybe there's a sin, bitterness, anger, selfishness. What are you carrying? What are you holding on to? What are you feeling the weight under? Jesus, take it. Take this from me. Heal me, free me. That's what our response should be. Jesus, I believe that you can do that. Maybe it is health-related. Bring healing, bring restoration, bring wholeness. Jesus does not only want to heal you, he is able to. And friends, he will because he loves you. That's our third point. Not only does he want to heal you, not only is he able to heal you, he will because he loves you. We see that in this third scene. And and not just a runny nose. She's laying down with a fever. She can't get up and walk around. And Jesus loves Peter. Jesus loves Peter's family. Peter loves, or sorry, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves your family. And he goes to her and heals her. And, And not only that, the word spreads. And so neighbors begin bringing friends over. Neighbors bring their sick over that evening and Jesus loves them and heals them. He heals however many people come to him, many people, with just a word. Matthew is telling us why he can heal, why he wants to heal, why he will heal, because Jesus loves them. He loves them sacrificially. That's why he ends in verse 17 quoting the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, the servant of, song. The, the, the song that teaches us that there will come a man who will take away the suffering of God's people. He heals because he loves sacrificially. He takes from them what they are bearing, what they are carrying. He took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. That's what this whole passage is about. Isaiah 53 continues, he was pierced, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's not just healing physically, it's healing spiritually that Jesus will heal us, taking from us the very thing that we are suffering under, the very thing that plagues our soul. He takes it from us and suffers in our place. Because he loves you, he will take away from you whatever it is that you're suffering under he will give you his life physically he will heal you maybe now but absolutely in the kingdom to come and the assurance of that is the cross where he took away our sin and bore he wants to heal you he's able to heal you and he will heal you because he loves you he will take away what we feel what we're suffering from and he will give us life I want to finish by sharing a story, uh, a fictional story. Maybe you've heard this. Before dawn one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking through the back alleys of the city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes and cloths, both bright and new, as he pulled the cart along, he called out in a clear and powerful voice, rags, rags, new rags for your old ones. I take your tired rags. The air was foul in these dark side streets, tainted by the filth and trash that living unleashes on the world. And yet, as the man called out, the air became tinged with the faint scent of cleanliness, as though the breeze then rain in a purifying wind. Rags! "'New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags!' The man continued to move through the dim light of early morning, his strong voice echoing from building to building and street to street. "'Now this is a curious thing,' I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular. His eyes flashed with intelligence. What was he doing here in a city that had no need for such a useless profession?' Who recycled rags anymore? Could he find no better job than this to be a ragman in the heart of a city? Driven by my curiosity, I followed him, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on the porch of a small house. She was crying into a handkerchief, racked with sobs as she shed a thousand tears. Her body language said it all as she seemed folded in on herself, shoulders down, back slumped forward, kneeing. Her body may have been alive, but her soul wanted to die. The ragman stopped his cart quietly. He walked over to the woman, stepping around empty beer cans, old newspapers, toys that needed new batteries, broken furniture. Give me your rag, he said gently as he knelt beside her and I'll give you another. The woman looked up into his powerful, compassionate eyes and saw something there that paused her tears. The ragman slipped the handkerchief from her hand and used it one last time to dry away the flow of tears from her face. Never taking his eyes off of her, he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She looked down at the new cloth and then back again to the eyes of the man who had given it to her. The ragman slowly leaned forward <clears throat> and kissed the woman's forehead, and then turned and walked back to his cart, as he began a to his own face, and then he began to weep. He sobbed as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking as the tears flowed down his face in a torrent of grief but looking back to the woman on the porch, I could see that she was left without a tear. She sat with her shoulders high and a look of wonder on her face. This is amazing, I thought to myself. And I followed the sobbing rag man like a curious child who cannot turn away from a mystery. I watched the rag man from a distance. Rags, rags, new rags for old, rang forth his voice. Though it was still strong, it also shook with emotion as he wept rags i take your old rags rags in a little while the sky showed gray behind the rooftops it was light enough to make out the shredded curtains and damaged blinds that hung in dark windows the ragman came upon a girl sitting curbside whose head was wrapped in a band soaked her bandage and a single line of blood ran down her cheek The ragman paused and turned his weeping eyes upon this empty, injured child. Reaching into his cart, he withdrew from it a beautiful yellow hat and walked towards the girl. Give me a rag, he said softly, and I'll give you mine. The child did not move and could only gaze at him vacantly while he loosened the bandage, removed it from her head, and tied it to his own instead. I gasped at what I saw. With the bandage went the wound. The girl's head was left unblemished while the ragman's head began to bleed. He sat the hat on the girl's head, and suddenly her eyes took on an understanding and an intelligence that had been missing before. She placed her hand to the side of her head where the bandage had covered the wound, and it was there no longer. Smiling in wonder, she watched as the ragman rose unsteadily to his feet and cried out the sobbing bleeding ragman new rags for old rags with his powerful arms pulling the cart he continued on his way he seemed to be moving faster now with an urgency i hadn't noticed before he stopped again in front of a man who was leaning against a telephone pole are you going to work he asked and the man shook his head the ragman pressed him do you have a job The man looked at him up and down, making note of the ragman's weeping eyes and bleeding head before replying, Are you crazy? He sneered as he leaned away from the pole, revealing that the right sleeve of his jacket was flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. Give me your jacket, said the ragman firmly, and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one armed man looked into the other's eyes and then slowly took off his jacket. So did the ragman. I rubbed my eyes in disbelief as I trembled at what I saw. The ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put on the dragman's jacket, he had two good arms, strong as tree limbs. The ragman was left with one. Go to work, he said as he moved back to his cart struggling to make do with his one arm the ragman began to pull his cart again this time much faster and with greater urgency he came upon an unconscious old drunk lying beneath an army blanket hunched weazened, and sick he looked he took that blanket and wrapped it around himself but for the drunk he left new clothes and now I have to run to keep up with the ragman. He was weeping uncontrollably, bleeding freely from the forehead. He struggled to pull his cart with his one arm while stumbling from drunkenness, falling again and again and again, exhausted, old, and sick. Yet he moved with terrible speed, nearly sprinting through the alleys of the city, covering block after block, mile upon mile. I wept to see the changes in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow and ached each time I saw him stumble and fall. When he began to move through the industrial area of the city away from the houses and apartments, I wanted to stop following and turn away from my grief, to leave it behind and go back to my normal life. But I could not. I needed to see this sad, amazing story to its end. Who was this ragman? Why had he done what nobody else would have done? Where is he going in such a hurry? How would it end? The once strong ragman was now old and frail, weeping and bleeding, staggering and falling, his body racked with pain, sorrow, and disease. I watched as he came to an old abandoned lot and was filled with piles of trash, old furniture, and rusted out shells of cars and construction equipment. He moved among the garbage pits and piles of human refuse and finally climbed on the top of a small hill made from the trash of a thousand lives. He struggled to pull his cart and its sad, pathetic burden. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. With a deep sigh, he slowly made a bed from the contents of his cart and lay down on it. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket He covered his old aching bones with an army blanket. His body shook under the load of its injuries and the pain and the disease. His eyes wept and the wound under his bandage continued to bleed. With one last deep sigh, he closed his eyes and died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I sat down in an old abandoned car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope. I wept because I had come to love the ragman. As I had followed him, I had watched him work wonders and change lives so profoundly that it didn't seem fair that he was gone. He had taken those things that were spoiled and damaged beyond repair and had replaced them with the new and the whole. He had offered hope to the damaged and the lost of the city. But if the ragman was gone, then my hope was gone as well. I felt such an overwhelming sense of grief and loss that I remained in the private seclusion of the rusted out car and sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and on through Saturday night as well. But then on Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violence that shook me to the core of my being, light. Pure, hard, insistent light slammed against my tear stained face and demanded that I awake. When I finally was able to open my eyes, I blinked against the light and squinted in the direction of the pile of trash where the ragman's body had been. As I looked, I saw the last and their first wonder of all. The ragman was there, yes, but he was no longer dead, he was alive. There he stood folding the old army blanket carefully and laying it atop the neatly arranged handkerchief and jacket. Besides the scar on his forehead, there was no other evidence of what he had previously taken upon himself. There was no sign of sorrow or age or evidence of illness or deformity. His body was whole and strong and all the rags that he had gathered shined with cleanliness. I wept to see him again. When I thought that hope had died along with Ragman, I had abandoned any hope for my own life. And yet there he stood, healthy and whole, climbing from my shelter. Climbing from my shelter, I moved toward the Ragman, trembling from what I had seen and because of what I knew I needed to do. Walking to him with my head lowered, I spoke my name to him with shame. Looking up into his clear, loving, compassionate eyes, I spoke with yearning in my voice, rags, please take my tired rags and replace them with new ones. And he did just that. Taking the old tired rags of my existence that covered the griefs and wounds of a life sadly lived, he replaced them with the new clothes of a life spent following him. He put new rags on me, and I am now dressed in wonder beside him. The ragman, the ragman, the Christ. Friends, Jesus stands ready and willing and able to heal you. Whatever it is that you feel the weight and burden of, bring it to him. He wants to heal you, he's able to heal you, and he will. Let's pray.